We're in a brand new series kicking off the new year here called Relentless. And what we're going to do is we're going to study, we're going to go through chapter by chapter the book in the Bible of Jonah. So I'd like to invite you to, uh, to look it up if you'd like to follow along that way. We're phone friendly, so you can follow on like the Bible app or, or online. Um, if you're a paper Bible kind of person, you can pull out the Bible and the chair in front of you. It's, it's going to be difficult to find Jonah. Let, let's be honest. It's like four chapters, Old Testament. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Obi-Wan, Jar Jar. It's like when you start to to get into the Star Wars sounding names, like you know you're close. There's no shame whatsoever in the table of contents. Like that's fine. But as you're inevitably taking a long time to find it, um, I'll, uh, I'll start off by saying, like, I've never done, I've, I've been a uh, preaching pastor now for about 10 years this month. I have never done a series out of the book of Jonah for the simple reason is it's weird. Like the book is just, it's so strange. In fact, if you didn't grow up in church, if this whole thing is new to you, chances are you probably know about the book of Jonah. It's this weird bananas kind of story where, where this guy is trying to run away from God and a fish swallows him whole. He lives inside successfully, the fish or whale, whatever, for three days, three nights, and then he's vomited up on the shore. I mean, it's just, it's a weird book of the Bible. There's no getting around it. And so I think I just avoided it for a long time for the simple reason, like, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do with it. But a couple of things started falling into place for me earlier in the year as kind of planning things out is that I realized, right, that, that this story is not really about Jonah. And it's also this story is not about the fish that eats Jonah. So I don't actually have to like dwell on some of those details because it's not about Jonah. It's not even about the fish. This story is about God and his relentless pursuit, his wholehearted commitment to you and I, admittedly, kind of a half-hearted, lukewarm, wishy-washy kind of of people. That's what this story is about. God's relentless pursuit, his wholehearted commitment to us, a half-hearted people. And so with that in mind, we can actually kind of get into the content of the message, the content of the book. So I invite you now, and the words are going to be on the screen behind me, to turn to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. We pick it up right off the bat. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, go to the great city of Nineveh. And so I just want to like point out again, we have it We have it reinstilled here. We have it where we see that the first person in the story's name, it's not Jonah, it's not Nineveh the city, it's not his dad, Amittai. The first person that's referenced in the book of Jonah is the Lord. Because that's who this story is about first and foremost. Like if you're looking for a hook to hang this installment, part one of Jonah on, you can just say like, listen, listen, God loves us so much. He will do whatever it takes to get us back. If you're looking for a hook, like it's as simple as that. That when you love someone, you're no different than he is. When you love someone, you will do whatever it takes to save them, no matter what. So just as a, as a quick kind of aside, I've got a friend who, uh, who is borrowing a cottage in an inland lake somewhere, which is the perfect kind of cottage, a borrowed cottage. And he's hanging out at this place, and they're like, hey, listen, use the place, you know, sleep in the big comfy beds, use our coffee maker, right, our games, make yourself at home. Just one thing we ask is, like, stay away from the, the motorized watercraft when we're not there. And it's like, small price to pay for a free cottage for a week, right? That we can do with it. Stay away from the boat, sea no problem. 
until he looks up and he saw his kid, maybe 10 years old at the time, small kid, 90 pounds dripping wet, right? And he sees his kid out playing on this, near this island in the middle of the lake, and he was tipping, and he could see water start to come in the side of the kayak. And those of you, you've kayaked before, you know, like it isn't long from the time that water starts to come in from when that thing is at the bottom of the lake. I mean, it happens quickly. And so he sees his kid like tipping the kayak and immediately grabs the keys, runs off the front porch down, down to the lake, jumps on one of those sedus that he was told not to use and just tears out there. The kid is like falling into the water, grabs the back of his life jacket, picks him up, throws him in the sedu, and they start coming home. And you know, there's like a part of you that's like, well, he probably shouldn't have used the sedu if it's, it's like, no, 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 no. When you love someone, you will do whatever it takes to save them. And as the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, we can see God doing this. He's loving them so much. He'll do whatever it takes to save them. And who's them? Number one, it's like these other people, these, these Ninevites, and we'll get to them in a minute. But, but also it's Jonah. He'll do whatever it takes to bring Jonah back. As we get into this story, it's a wild story. It's a fantastic story in like a literal sense of the word, like a fantasy, fantastical kind of story. Like, like it's so strange. It's so bizarre. Like, like nobody would blame you. I wouldn't blame you if you walked away and you're like, listen, this whole thing, is, it has to be made up. I mean, this sort of thing can't possibly happen, right? And I just, I want to I want to point something out, right? Before you make a decision on that, I just want to say, like, if you're one person, very reasonable, scientific-minded kind of person who says there's no possible way that a fish could swallow a guy and he could live three days and three nights inside of that fish and then get vomited up on shore alive, there's no way that that could happen. If that's you, very reasonable position to take, but I also want to highlight you're going to have a lot of problems with the, other, with the other stories in this Bible. Like if you're looking at that story and you're like, that is just too much. It is hard to swallow a story like that. <laughs> 2020 is the year of puns. Oh. Um, stay tuned. Brace yourself. There's a, lot more, there's a lot more difficult stories coming at you. So just hang on there. In fact, in fact there's so many things. Like just think about in the beginning, God created. Genesis 1.1, it starts off that way. And you think about how ridiculous that is, how incredible that is, that like all of this came from God just speaking into the nothing. In fact, if anybody were to tell you that they did it, that they created on its own this, this new thing, and, and everything is just like this perfect little world that they made in a lab somewhere, and they didn't even do it out of nothing. They did it out of something. But, but somehow they got to, to dial in the gravitational constants and the atomic bond levels, right? They got to create self-aware intelligence in a lab. And they're like, we did it, finally. There's no way that any of us would ever believe that they, got to, that they did that. In fact, there's no way we should, we should at all believe that this stuff around us exists. The only reason why we do believe it is because we seem to be living in it, and it got here somehow, so I guess I'll just take it as fact, even though we don't really understand where it all came from. Like, there's just so many things in the story that you're just like, that makes no sense. Like, I can't even wrap my mind around that. Jesus, like, calling his shot, dying, and then bringing himself back 
from the dead. I mean, that's a wild story. In fact, I don't even think this fish story even cracks the top 10 of the most bizarre stories in the Bible. We're going to get to this thing. We're going to see a big fish swallow up Jonah. And I'm looking at it and going, that's not hard to believe. That's like JV kind of miracle stuff, right? That's not even the big leagues. We're going to get to that later on. But anyway, okay, so Jonah, he comes to the son of Amittai. Um, Jonah, the son of Amittai. The other reason why I don't think I don't think we should take this as parable, as, as made-up story, as fantasy story, is because the way that it's told, if we're going to treat this like any other kind of literature, we would have to, we'd have to dig in, we'd have to read it as it's meant to be read. And it's not intended, it's clearly not intended to be fantasy, to be made-up parable kind of story. Jesus told a lot of made-up stories. He told a lot of parables, stories that he would make up in order to drive home or leverage a spiritual truth. And the way we know that he's making up a story is it's super vague, vague enough to be anybody and everybody, even though it's not really anyone in particular. And so he would tell a story, he'd make up a story, and he'd say, there was a man who had two sons. And it's like, well, who is that? I mean, I think that's Joe. He's got two sons over here. It's like, no, 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 no. It's a made-up story. It could be anybody. There was a shepherd who had 100 sheep. There was a woman who had 10 coins, right? A man was traveling from one of the largest cities in the nation to the other largest city in the nation. Like it's, it's vague enough. It could be everyone, even though it's not particular anyone. In this story, we see Jonah, son of Amittai. It's grounded in history. Go to the great city of Nineveh. You can almost like identify the 15 to 20-year period that it's hung on in all of human history. It's like that specific. Lots of stories in 2 Kings about Jonah. Like he was a well-known person. And so the other thing is why I don't think, why I don't think it's an entirely made up story. When Jesus references this story, because he had access to it, Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 11, Jesus references this as if it actually happens. And like, I don't know. When he dies and comes back to life and tells me that this story happened, like, I just take his word for it. Like, I believe him. In fact, most of my faith hangs on the fact that I just believe what Jesus tells me after what he did and who he did it for. Okay, nevertheless, great city of Nineveh. This is the message, verse two. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So we're kind of setting the scene. This is, this is Jonah and now this is Nineveh. Three things about Nineveh. It's big, it's bad, and it's far outside of his territory. We're going to find out in the book of Jonah that, that Jonah, when he finally does get to Nineveh, it takes him three days to go from the perimeter of the city to the center of the city. That's a big city. We're going to also hear from these outside historical voices. So this is not in the Bible. This is just people recording the facts and things that they have seen that the city of Nineveh as a capital city of a historical civilization called Assyria. We're going to see, uh, we're going to hear from these historians who said the walls of that city were so thick that on the top of the wall, you could race chariots around them three wide. Like this is, this is objectively an impressive city. It's big, it's bad, it's cruel, it's horrible. Even by ancient Middle Eastern standards, it's a cruel, cruel place. They had a reputation. They would, they would reinstill that by making these like hieroglyphics, these kind of like little, little drawings depicting scenes. And we know the archaeological record shows like 
the thing that they loved to draw about most were some of the cruelest, oppressive scenes of they themselves, not only taking a people, but torturing a people. One of the things that they would do is taking a people and torturing the people is they would bury them in the ground up, up to like their chins. And then they would pull out their tongues, put a stake through it, and allow them to wither of malnutrition and dehydration, all while listening to the Mariah Carey Christmas album on repeat constantly. <laughs> so I made that last part out, but the first part was true. Reputation, they're big, they're bad. And for Jonah, though, we got to know, they're far outside. Far outside of God's people. And this was the thing for Jonah. This is the thing that he just, he couldn't wrap his mind around. Because when he became a prophet, he signed up to speak to God's people on God's behalf. And so what he does is he gets this message saying, go to Nineveh, go to Assyria, go to this big, cruel people. Because you know what? They're in trouble and I want you to save them. And it's not too far outside for Jonah to say, listen, no, no, that's not what I signed up for. I cannot believe in a God who cares about them, who loves them or someone like that. It's also important to realize that the Assyrian nation was the immediate adjacent neighbor to the east of the Israelite people. So when we talk about how big and bad they are and some of the cruel things that they have done, this is not just stories that the Israelite people hear about. These are their stories. That those acts were inflicted on them. And for Jonah to draw the line in the sand and say, no. Can you blame him? So this is what he does. This is his plan to get away. Verse three, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to, to flee from the Lord. Now, and I, I was looking at this, you know, I got one of those study Bibles too, where you can like read in the notes in the bottom of it. And so I can see that uh, you know, Joppa is sort of the opposite direction of uh, Nineveh. So I can see like the point is pretty clear, but I wasn't quite just aware of just how clear that point was until I took it a step further and like, where are these places in particular? So I just want you to have the same effect I did. So I brought some maps. This is uh, where Jonah is in um, Israel, probably the Northern Kingdom of Israel, the uh, white star. This is where Nineveh is, modern day Baghdad in Iraq, uh, red circle over there. And she's like, okay, that's a, you know, North and East quite a ways, but this is where he goes down to Joppa south and west. So you're like, okay, that's pretty much the opposite direction you could get to. He's not done because he jumps on a boat heading for Tarshish, which is all the way across the world. It's literally on the edge of the known map for Jonah. I'm trying to think of like a modern day equivalent of this thing, right? And I'm like, okay, so if God, the word of the Lord comes to Dirk and says, go to this great city of Holland, right? I don't know why they have to be the Ninevites, but <laughs> the wooden shoe fits, am I right? Um, and I go the opposite direction to the airport. 
and I get on a plane and I head to Australia, I still haven't come close to the equivalency because for about a thousand bucks in a day and a half, I can get myself to Australia. This is like a life savings fair to get all the way across to this place that almost nobody has been from this side all the way to that side and back before. The modern day equivalent is something like not going to Australia, but going to the moon to get away from Holland that badly, right? That's, that's what he's after. That's Tarshish. But there's a more important point in here for, all, for each one of us. There's something, there's something besides that for each one of us is that when he goes down to Joppa, he, I don't think he knows exactly where he's going. But he very, very conveniently finds a ship heading to Tarshish all the way across the map. And I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility for Jonah to say, see, if God doesn't love me and want me to be happy, why would he have this ship ready for me? And if you find yourself in that place, where you're on that edge of disobedience and you find that that next step is entirely that convenient and you have peace in your heart about it, tread cautiously because I don't think that that ship was prepared by God to take him away. I think that ship was prepared by the other side. And I would just like to remind you in that place of decision or indecision, obedience or disobedience, you in fact have an enemy whose sole reason for existence is to ready a ship to take you away from God at the exact time that you're ready to get aboard. So when you sit down and you talk to somebody and they're pouring out their heart to you and telling you why it's all over, and it's all over in their marriage because of infidelity, because somebody was unfaithful. They were unfaithful. And they started to tell the story and said, you don't understand, I was so unhappy. It was so hard. You know, it wasn't like it was supposed to be. It wasn't like it was early on. You know, and then I met so-and-so, and they were just, they were so good, and they were so kind. And, and we were just, we were just like this perfect fit together. You know, in another world, it would be obvious that I was meant to be with them. Doesn't God want me to be happy? If not, he wouldn't have made it so easy for me. Just be aware. Be aware. In that time when you're like getting ready to leave the presence of God, to, to set sail away from him, that that boat may not have been put there by God. It may not be there for you. It may be there against you. It may be taking you to this entire destination far away from the presence of God that will only lead you to further and further hurt. And we haven't even begun to see the end of it in the story so far. Verse 4. He's on the boat, and the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his own God. They're doing everything, everything that they can. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Jonah had gone, Jonah had gone down, had gone below deck, where he lay down 
and fell into a deep sleep, deep sleep like the kind of sleep that God put Adam into in Genesis chapter two, same word, where God caused Adam, the first man to fall into a deep sleep where God takes one of his ribs and creates woman, Eve, that kind of deep sleep. He is down for the count. This is what I love about the book of Jonah, and we can't even scratch the surface of it. You should read the story on your own. The literary masterpiece that's represented here. He's talking, going down, uh, going down. It's a geographical distinction for a spiritual designation. He goes which direction? To Joppa. He goes, he goes down to Joppa. He gets on board and he heads below deck where he lays down where he falls into a deep, dark, deep sleep. If you're like a note-taking kind of person in your paper Bible uh, on the app, just write down three words, beware the drift. I I think that's what the author is cautioning us against. It's a geographical distinction for a spiritual designation. He's, He's heading downward. Some of you have, have had that experience um, on the beach, playing in the water. It does not have to be deep. Uh, uh, knees, waist deep. Let's say um, we've already made fun of Holland, so let's go Grand Haven. You're at Grand Haven State Park. You're on the water. You're playing, playing catch. Everything's fine. You look up uh, and to just kind of get your bearings, you don't recognize anything on the shore. Like, not your umbrella, not your towels, not the other umbrellas and towels around where you were. You start, like, looking all over the place. You've drifted, like, a hundred feet and didn't even notice. Beware the drift. It happens. As Jonah is moving, he is going down. It's geographical, geographic designation, spiritual designation. He's moving. He's he may not even be aware of exactly how much is happening. Friends, that's how it works. That's what God is here to save you from. You may not be aware as to how powerful the current, the drift is in your life. I'm just reminded to tell you That for some of you, the affair that will happen in your 40s or 50s, the seeds of that will be planted in your 20s with a wandering eye, with a a prolonged gaze. Drift happens. The eating disorder that seems to have developed in college, in post-college, will start with with this, this unchecked belief of the messages that the world has put in your place. It does not end there. It simply begins there. Drift happens. The, the life of a 60, 70-year-old miser holding on to everything that comes into his or her fingers, closed-fisted, stingy towards others, stingy towards God, bitter towards everyone, that starts as, a, as an unchecked belief in your 30s that the world is out to get you, that nothing, nothing is good out there. Drift happens. But Jonah, he goes down to Joppa, below deck, lies down, deep sleep. And you think he's, he's as far down as he can get. No, he's not even wet yet, okay? It gets worse. Storm time, verse six. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? 
Call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, come, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They're calling everything out, right? They have no idea what to do. And so they're just like, hey, everybody, your gods, your gods. They're getting the crystals out, the essential oils out, right? The, the handkerchief blessed by televangelists. Whatever they got, it's, it's hold nothing back. They cast lots. And time after time, it falls on Jonah. Verse 8, so they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? Also, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea, and by the way, the dry land too. And this terrified them. And they said, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he already told them so. What did the sailors do wrong? The captain? They're just running their trade routes. This is a, this is a Monday for them. This one line could save you and yours from a world of hurt. Your disobedience hurts the people around you. Someone told it to me like this. They said, you know what? When you're on the edge and you're going to do that thing and, you're, and you have to choose whether or not to jump or not, to be obedient and stay or jump and not. You can choose to jump, but you don't get to choose what or who breaks when you hit the ground. You can choose to siphon off the top. You can choose to embezzle. You can choose to steal. You might get fired. You'll likely end up in jail. That's on, that's on you, but sin is not personal because then there's going to be a kid who grows up without a dad because of that decision. You can choose to jump. You can't choose who or what breaks when you hit the ground. Our disobedience, it is not just ours. It belongs to those of you sitting around you, living with you, working next to you at this very moment. Disobedience hurts others, but thank God the opposite of that is also true is that your holiness blesses the people around you. Like the best thing that you can do for the woman that you marry, the man that you marry, is to live a holy life. The best father you could be is to live a holy, righteous life. The best coworker, the best neighbor that you could be is to live a holy life. It blesses other people, those in your immediate proximity. But Jonah, now Jonah, we're talking about disobedience. And we're talking about them picking him up and now throwing him overboard because God has a plan. Because that disobedience, it's spiraling. And we thought, this, this can't possibly get worse as he's in the bottom of a ship and a storm comes. And now that they throw him overboard, we think, okay, this, this is now the low point. This is as bad as it possibly can get. At least the sea doesn't smell very bad. It's going to get worse. Listen, listen. Verse 11. The sea is getting rougher and rougher. And so they ask, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And he goes, I know, I know, I caused this, I know. Verse 12, pick me up, 
throw me into the sea, he replied, and it'll become calm. I know that it's my fault this great storm has come upon you. Instead, (laughs) the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. They're in a rowing match with God. Good luck. Verse 14, then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. I chose to stop it there. As I said earlier, there's a fish in this story that we're going to pick up with next week. But, but right now, for just, just a moment, it looks as if Jonah could just get back in the boat. They just threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. That must have been it. Jonah hasn't learned his lesson and God certainly isn't done teaching. That's not the end of the story. For today, a couple thoughts, not on the fish, on the storm. Because some of you are in the storm and some of you have been in the storm. And some of you in 2020, you're coming into the storm and you're like, why in the world are these things happening? And so when that happens, I just want to invite you, maybe by yourself, maybe with one or two other people, is just to ask, is there some way in which maybe God is, God is behind this? God is teaching me something through all of this. Is there some way maybe that God loves me enough to save me from my own self-reliance and take that from me? Is there some way that God is like breaking my pride by causing failure at every turn because he's getting me to turn more towards him in the long run? It's going to be far, it's going to be worth it. But it hurts like crazy in the storm right now. Now I think, I think, church, that if you were to ask him, he's gonna give you an answer. Because just like I discipline my kids, I don't come home, I don't come home from work and be like, go to your room. And they're like, why? And I'm like, just go. Find out later. No, no, I love my kid. And because I love my kid, when we do that, I tell him, I make it clear to him, to her, why they're being disciplined, what's happening. And I think God is going to do the same thing for us now. Just this week, this year, ask him. See if he doesn't make it clear to you too. And the other thought is that in verse three, way back up in verse three, where it says that Jonah was to flee from the presence of the Lord is a strange phrase. And we have to acknowledge that. Because those of you who have walked with God for a long time, one of the basic truths that you learn early on is God is everywhere, all the time. And it's frustrating and delightful at times, the same time, that you can't flee from his presence. Jonah, being a professional Jesus or a professional God follower, he knew he couldn't escape the presence of the Lord. But the word isn't presence in a generic sense. The word for him that's used there is presence in a specific sense. The word is panim in Hebrew, face. He was trying to flee from the face of God. He knew he couldn't escape the technical presence of God, but he just didn't want God's face in front of him anymore, not after what he did asking me to go there. And so for some of you, you're just like, yeah, I get that. 
I can, I, can, I can get behind that. I can understand just wanting to be away from the face of God, even if I can't escape the technical presence of God. Because the message that I got about who God is growing up is that God, God is, is, is puny and vindictive and vengeful, and he's just looking for an opportunity to nab us. And I'm just done with it. In fact, the only thing why I'm a, I, I pretend to believe in this stuff is like my get out of jail or get out of hell free card. Like it's fire insurance for me. That's it. Nothing more. In fact, it's just a cultural thing or a family thing. But like the face of God that Jonah is going to get to experience, maybe even for the first time, is something so opposite. It's something so beautiful. It's actually that face of God that is so valuable, that is so precious, that we're going to see him running towards God. And we're going to see other people um, in, the, in the story of God, in the Bible, running towards that face of God because, not because they, they fear it, but because they love it and they're drawn towards it. In fact, that's like the primary motivation the primary motivation of us as, as Christians, as Jesus followers, is to follow that face of God because it's so valuable and so precious to each one of us. And God knows that, and he wants to teach us that, and so he'll do anything necessary to bring us back. The storm in the story, it was not there as a puny vengeful, from a puny vengeful God. The storm in the story was not there to pay him back the storm was there to bring him back because that's what a God who loves his people that incredibly much does. He'll do whatever it takes to save him, to save us, to bring us back. The storm in the story was not a point of retaliation. It was a point of restoration. And you know, you know how I know that? Jesus Christ on the cross Jesus Christ, God himself, comes from heaven to earth and says, I will accept the punishment of sin and wrath and the anger of God. May it fall on my shoulders squarely. For anybody who puts their hope in me, it doesn't fall on them. It doesn't fall on us. It fell on him. If there's a point of the story that the storm was vindictive, that nullifies the point of the cross in the first place. No, the point of the, of the storm in the story, it is not, it is not, it is not retaliation for running away. It's restoration to bring him back. And I think he's maybe bringing you back this morning as well. Let him. Listen, you don't need to go in the bottom hull of a ship. You don't need experience being thrown overboard. You don't need to be swallowed up by a big fish and live inside for three days. You can say yes earlier. Life is better on the other side. This is the, the point of the story. You know, my, my friend that I told you earlier who, who saw his kid in the kayak go overboard and he, he grabs one of those cedars, he tears across the lake, grabs the kid by the back of the life jacket, squash them down right in front of them and they're full throttle now. They're riding back in and the kid looks back and he goes, what about the kayak? Dad, it's sinking. And by this time, like, it's at the bottom of the lake. And his dad just kind of smiles and laughs and said, you're worth more than a kayak. He's 10 years old and he just repeats that 
under his breath three times, I'm worth more than a kayak, more than a kayak. I'm worth more than a kayak. You are. In our God, he will do whatever it takes, storm included, to bring you back the relentless God we serve. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, uh, many of us are in the storms of our lives right now. and We feel like we've been rowing against you with all of our might for some time now. And God, we admit and we confess we are not getting anywhere. Give us the courage to submit today, to say, God, I don't want to experience the bottom of a ship or the belly of a fish. God, I'm going to relent because I know you won't. You love us that much. Jesus, may we turn toward you this week and to say your way. You are Lord of all, but you're not Lord at all. God, thank you for pursuing us and loving us to death and back. In your name we pray. Amen. There's a tradition on one of the holiest Jewish days in the calendar, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a day traditionally when people, when God's people believed that that was the day that God would choose whether or not to give them another year or not. And so they prayed and they fasted. And one of the traditions on that day was to read the book of Jonah in its entirety, four chapters. And at the end, all the people in unison would say together, I am Jonah. At this time, we have an opportunity to celebrate God's atonement, his atoning sacrifice for us in this form of of communion, the Lord's Supper, when by taking this bread and this cup, we say together in our hearts, I am Jonah. And God will have his way with me. Thank God he will have his way with me.